Here comes the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Where is Hamilton in the fight against COVID-19? An update. The majority of Canadians don't think the feds will meet their COVID-19 vaccine targets. And more royal fallout. It's on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Eileen, Scott's wife. Kurt forgot again. I think the warmer weather has him giddy. I know it has that effect on his dad. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Thank you, honey. Last time was supposed to be her last time, but she's still here. That's great. Huh? Oh, I just got the snake eye. I just got the snake eye through the glass door. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine, uh, back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Uh, Jordan Armini is producing the content today and another great show for us. Uh, Kurt, yeah, I think it's warm weather. He just, the, the door opens, he heads out. He's the only one allowed, right? Kids in school. Uh, man, the Center for Disease Control in the United States have, uh, now that they're whipping along with their vaccine protocol or with their vaccine uh, uh, process, their mass vaccinations, uh, the Center for Disease Control is putting out uh, guidelines. Okay, here's what you can do once the doors swing open. And Canadians are sitting on the other side of the fence going, what's going on? Uh, if you're vaccinated in the States, you can hang out with other vaccinated people, no mask. No mask, uh, no social distancing. There you go. Also, uh, if the old folks are vaccinated, you can visit the grandparents, providing uh, everybody is healthy and happy and, and that sort of thing. And again, uh, those that uh, are of adult age are vaccinated. Uh, pretty interesting news. Still a ways away for us as uh, vaccines still in short supply, although there seems to be more uh, focus on the provinces and the municipalities and what they're doing with limited supply uh, more than there is on the fact that uh, we keep hearing about these vaccines, but it's still going to be, I think, now by next week before we really start seeing any sort of mass vaccinations uh, start towards the uh, the end of the month. Where is Hamilton in all of this? Uh, we are certainly seeing signs of progress as vaccination is on the horizon. Uh, however, there's still plenty of concern about a possible third wave, the variants. And, um, you know, that's evidence in, in just some of the planning and the protocol we're still seeing uh, in place. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, director of the Emergency Center for the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. I uh, am doing well. It's with warm temperatures and sunshine, even all of the pandemic work, you have to smile a little bit. It's uh, it's looking up. That's a very valid point. All right. So um, give us first an update of where Hamilton is. Uh, obviously, uh, Dr. Richardson still concerned over variants and such. Uh, where is Hamilton now? Where are we as far as uh, vaccination as well? Uh, so in terms of the virus uh, in the community, still, you know, uh, high numbers, uh, certainly not where we were uh, heading through the holiday season and into January. That's the good news. Uh, the not so good news is we seem to be, you know, stuck. If you look at our cases per 100,000 on a weekly basis, we're sort of in that mid-50s range and have been for a while. So we see days of 80 or 90. We see days of 30 or 40. Um, so we're, we're, we're there. Variants are certainly a concern for Dr. Richardson and her team, and, and they're certainly here. And as you've heard her say, we basically treat it as though variants, uh, when outbreaks happen, are, are there. And, and we look at our infection control measures and outbreak measures uh, accordingly. So still lots of that transmission, a lot of outbreaks. You know, we, we have about 30 outbreaks uh, happening right now in this city. So there is lots on that side of it. Uh, but you mentioned the ramping up of a vaccine, and we're really excited about that. And you can tell that we are now more confident in the uh, volumes of vaccine that are coming into the community going up in the near future. Because yesterday we announced that uh, we will be uh, organizing uh, First Ontario Centre to get going as a mass vaccination site. And also then uh, at the end of March or into early April, Rosedale Arena as well. And that will <clears throat> provide four large uh, uh, mass vaccination sites, and then we continue to do some mobile and pop-up work to take care of some uh, local community needs. So that is uh, the piece that uh, we're excited about. It has been a long time coming, and I know that uh, 
Uh, you know, we keep asking people to be patient. The bottom line is once vaccine supply starts to roll, once Monday comes and people can book online, uh, we expect it will be smoother for people who need to book to get their vaccine. And also we'll have a lot more supply to put in people's arms. So who are you vaccinating uh, at this point and and how would people be signing up for this in the future? So at this point, it's it's a variety of people, but the, the big piece that started a couple of weeks ago is uh, is booking in those who are 85 and, and older. And, and that has been a process that I know people have found um, frustrating. It's a callback process. We really need people to answer the phone uh, and, and pick up those calls when uh, their name is on the list. They'll get a call back and get in. Many people have been getting to the sites, and it's been great to see that vaccination rolling out. We have lots of healthcare workers. An expanded list now of those in healthcare, uh, which include our, our uh, paramedics and firefighters, as well as uh, community-based uh, uh, health uh, professionals, people that work in shelters, for instance, and those types of environments. So lots of that happening at the moment. What changes on Monday is that uh, we move into the 80-plus uh, crowd being able to book. Uh, on Monday, it will be about booking online. Uh, so you can you can do that yourself and, and pick where it is that uh, you need to get to for the vaccine. So we're excited by that. And obviously, opening it up to larger populations is a good thing in the middle of, of April. We expect that to drop to uh, the 75 range. But the flexibility is there always to you know, speed up a little bit or, or what have you, depending on communities. And I know that that's a concern. People say, well, hey, in this community, I understand they're doing this. And that may be because of a number of other factors that that community has or doesn't have that Hamilton has or doesn't have. You know, we have a lot of long-term care facilities, congregate settings, a lot of healthcare workers to move through uh, that are high priority. So sometimes the timing isn't exact uh, community to by community, but we're all trying to do as much as we can to get that vaccine out. Uh, obviously, we're still seeing a, a vaccine shortage, although it is all ramping up and, and hopefully sooner than later. When are you expecting to ho- open these mass injection sites like you're talking about at Rosedale Arena and First Ontario Centre? Uh, so First Ontario Centre will be uh, a little bit later in March, but uh, we don't expect it'll be more than about two weeks away from getting that up and going. Uh, so that's some good news. Rosedale would probably be into uh, the very early part of April, and that's just so that we can get the staffing trained and get everything on site so uh, so that it's a seamless process as people begin to, to book in. But let's remember, we already have a large-scale vaccine uh, site uh, up and going uh, at the West Fifth Hospital for St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. And it is uh, doing, uh, you know, uh, hundreds a day, but it can get up to uh, 2,000 a day when we need it to. So we're confident in the short term as people book, we'll be able to take a large volumes of, of folks next week. And then in the following week, as we start to get ready for First Ontario Centre, that will add more uh, capacity to the system. And then in April, we'll have uh, you know, Rosedale up and going. And then the other piece that's been really great is that we've been working with community on some of these mobile and pop-up sites. And they do far less people, even at a max amount. They might do, uh, you know, 100 to 200 people a day. But they're able to get us into communities. They could be neighbourhoods uh, where there's a high need for us to uh, break down any access barriers and get out into those communities. And it's also helped us uh, provide opportunities for people to access I'm in some of the rural communities and suburban areas of the city. So I think through this process, uh, Sky, you'll see uh, more and more access. Um, and for those who are saying, well, how come I can't do that now? How come I can't do it now? It's really a product of supply. If we were to open all these things today, we'd be closing them one day after they open yeah, and yeah. pausing and waiting for our vaccine to arrive. And it's also, uh, you know, uh, with the logistics involved here, it's very, very ha- hard to ramp these things up and then shut them down. The supply chain has to keep steady in order for these to be effective. It does. And the other piece is we need to get the people involved. I mean, we didn't have uh, hundreds of people sitting around waiting for this moment in history. Yeah. We're redeploying people. We're working with our healthcare partners. We're, we're finding ways to staff these while we also deal with outbreaks, while we also deal with contact tracing and and case management while we also deal with all of the other services that we want to keep going on a daily basis. So it is a doing multiple things at the same time. And and I just uh, have nothing but praise for our healthcare partners who have helped us get going in the early stages and our city staff and other folks that are going to be helping to make sure these clinics are um, as, uh, as smooth an experience for people who are coming to them as possible. And the good news is, is that although there's been some headaches of people getting on lists and getting those appointments, once they arrive at the clinic, um, they are finding the, the process to be a very smooth and, and, and a positive one. 
and ultimately at the end of the day so pleased that they've had that vaccine uh, injection. Yeah, I can imagine what, uh, you know, there's lots of anxiety going in, but I'm sure there's uh, quite a celebration on the way out the door. Um, tell us a bit more about uh, uh, this pop, uh, pop-up hospital that you're, that you're planning and reasoning for it. Uh, so the work is, is happening in conjunction with Hamilton Health Sciences and senior levels of government. So uh, the city is aware of it, and, and we've been working in partnership all the way along. But the lead for this is a hospital, obviously. So there's, there's been concern all the way along, given what happened in that second wave, <clears throat> that we're prepared. That there, you know, if healthcare systems get overwhelmed, where would we move patients to and where would the hospitals be able to free up space? And so I know that that conversation has been happening. But, you know, we continue to look at the evidence and the data to see whether these are are necessary functions. And I know that uh, Hamilton Health Sciences continues to have those. So anytime you hear about these contingencies and hear about these possibilities, it's really as people continue to look at the data. And sometimes we're a little more concerned, but then other times we may watch data for a week or two and say, you know what, we, we, we're in an area that can handle it. But our, as you know, our healthcare resources in terms of of those critical care beds and acute care beds, um, they're, they're in short supply if there's a sudden influx of, of patients. And, you know, the variant, Scott, is what everybody's concerned about. How much will that change the game? And then the other side is how fast can we get a, a vaccine into people's arms? And so it's, it's, it's these multiple races we're trying, <clears throat> excuse me, to have contingencies in place for that. And that's where that comes from. But again, it's not opening tomorrow or the next day. This is an ongoing conversation between the hospital and the senior levels of government. It's fascinating, though, uh, Paul, because obviously we heard of Burlington opening up one uh, earlier on in the pandemic. And now as we're seeing vaccines arrive, you'd think there would be less need for this. And and again, I want to stress this is preparation. This is precaution. Uh, But it's interesting that everybody is still focusing on this, what could be a third wave. and, and, And they're being prepared until vaccines actually do get into arms. Yeah, and we have to be prepared. I mean, the bottom line is, is that uh, although we've, uh, I think at latest count, it's over 45,000 vaccines have been administered at the city of Hamilton, it's still not enough to say, uh, you know, we, we can feel confident that, um, uh, you know, uh, people are not going to need hospitalization. There isn't going to be this huge health impact on it. Uh, we're just not at that stage yet. And you just have to look at the outbreaks. And yes, uh, you can see the impact of vaccine because certainly our long-term care facilities uh, now um, we're feeling a little, a lot more confident about uh, what's happening in there in terms of, of uh, the impact of COVID-19. But in many other settings, uh, we don't have immunity. Uh, we're only now starting to roll it out by age. And so there's a lot of the population that are going about their day-to-day activities uh, still not immune to this. And, and that's why we're, we're planning on both fronts. But, you know, the faster we can ramp up this work about vaccines, and that's why we're really focused on making sure we have the ability to deliver thousands of doses a day. That is the way that ultimately we'll, uh, we'll better protect our, our community. But I do want to uh, make an important point here, and Dr. Richardson will be making this point uh, in the days to come, is that public health measures don't end the minute the shot goes in your arm. And the reasons for that are, are many, and Dr. Richardson can, can walk us through that in the coming days. But I think it's really important for people to feel good about the fact that um, the vaccine is here, but also remember that after the vaccine, uh, yeah, it's a good, nice, fun moment. But uh, please continue to wear a mask, uh, physically separate. Uh, all of those you know, congregating rules uh, apply at this point, Scott. Uh, and, and I know you uh, also wanted to touch on house parties. That is a concern and gatherings uh, that are going on. You, uh, touch on that and, and, and obviously the guidance there needed. Yeah, and the guidance still is that uh, we are in the red control zone. We are at a very restrictive level, and that's because of what I mentioned off the top. Our, our cases are, are, are stubbornly in that mid-50s range, and that, uh, you know, that is not close to us moving into those very less restrictive areas. So, you know, we are talking about it's it's a maximum of five people that are gathering indoors, um, and we need to make sure that uh, that the people are following those rules. And we've had a couple of cases, including one because it's a business that landed on our on our webpage uh, in terms of some fines and charges that were laid that are you know renting out facilities to large gatherings, and it's just uh, it's just not appropriate. And then the private parties and. You know, I, I understand it, and, and I, I, I'm asking people to be safe. I, you know, I'm not trying to be the heavy here, but, 
you know, the 50th birthday parties, the anniversary parties, the engagement parties with large numbers of people. We just have to wait a little bit longer. And, and I think we can all pull together on those. I get it. It's difficult. I get it. People want to celebrate. Uh, that time's going to come, Scott, and it's going to come sooner rather than later now, but it's uh, not here today. And so we will be out enforcing and, and we don't want to ruin people's gatherings that way. But to be honest, to keep people safe, um, we need to do it. All right, so Monday, uh, starting to book those that are 80-plus, what information do you want to pass to them? Uh, Stay tuned to all of the local media channels. We're working very hard today and tomorrow to get all of the information right so that we can be very clear with the community. Here's what you need to have. Here's what you you need to be prepared for as you book, uh, book online. And, uh, and obviously what supports are there for people who uh, may not have uh, what's necessary in order to use the online booking piece. But uh, this will not be a telephone booking piece for the vast majority of the population. It needs to be done through that online piece. So uh, please, uh, you know, watch uh, and listen. Uh, folks like yourself will be sharing this information. We'll be getting it out as much as we can. It'll be on our website. And, uh, you know, people can use the weekend, prepare and be ready for Monday and and just uh, have that continued patience. We expect the crush on Monday will be large, but uh, you know mm-hmm. we're here to try and support people through that, and, and hopefully we can get as many people booked as possible. It is the way out of this uh, pandemic for, uh, for our community and for the rest of the world. Paul Johnson with us, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton, and uh, good news on the horizon, but we must still be diligent with the protocol. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Uh, Kudos to you and all the staff for uh, helping to keep us all safe. Be well. Thank you. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Now that U.S. states are reporting 25% of their adults are vaccinated once and about 10% of U.S. adults are fully vaccinated twice, the Center for Disease Control is issuing new guidelines for vaccinated Americans who are now free. Fully vaccinated Americans can gather with others who have been fully vaccinated indoors without wearing a mask or social distancing. They can also visit with vaccinated grandparents. Can you imagine? As Canadians get ready for enough COVID vaccines to arrive to actually start mass vaccination programs, which is hopefully by next week, it amazes me how there is still more focus on the provinces and their ability to deliver vaccines they have yet to receive. As opposed to the fact we still don't have enough here to mass vaccinate enough to make a big difference and won't for months. That's why we're extending the second dose. It's as if we are penalizing the provinces for what has been Justin Trudeau's fumble. I don't get it. I'm Scott Thompson. Everything we're doing every single day in terms of keeping Canadians safe, of getting vaccines here as quickly as possible and into as many Canadians' arms as we possibly can is our singular focus, along with uh, preparing the economy to come roaring back as quickly as possible. Uh, another uh, passionate, breathy speech from the Prime Minister this morning, but uh, again, just repeating the same stuff that we've already heard, that stuff's coming in and, um, you know, uh, mass vaccination sites are going to open soon. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, people are concerned as they look across the border and the Center for Disease Control is putting out guidelines of what Americans can do once they're fully vaccinated. And a new uh, poll uh, from Ipsos and Global says the majority of Canadians do not feel the feds will meet their COVID-19 vaccine targets as time goes on. Let's bring in Shine, uh, Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs and is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for asking. It's fascinating that even as uh, we're hearing of more and more vaccines coming in in the next uh, few weeks to to hopefully uh, fill up these mass vaccination sites, uh, Canadians are becoming a little skeptical of this. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head when you said hearing about vaccines, because that's all we're doing is we're hearing about vaccines. We're not seeing them. We're not feeling them in our arms. And uh, and so Canadians, 52 percent of them anyway, are skeptical uh, when the prime minister reasserts and pledges that uh, we will have enough vaccines to have everybody vaccinated by the end of of, uh, of September. 
Uh, now, last month, I think it was 57% said they weren't confident. So the prime minister is starting to convince some people, uh, but still uh, a slim majority, uh, you know, are called a BS on that pledge and just don't see how it's going to happen. It seems that we're having more focus on the provinces than we are on the feds on this issue, which I find fascinating. We're, you know, we're, we're complaining that vaccine, the vaccine that isn't here isn't being distributed properly. Uh, and, you know, these systems better get ready. The provinces better be ready for this yeah. mass vaccination as opposed to focusing on the federal government. And, and where are they? Yeah, and, and I guess that's a communications win for the federal government. Uh, I think what they're they're trying to do is set themselves uh, up uh, for a way that they they can't be pointed at, at to as the culprit. So, for example, uh, vaccination delays are the problems of the pharmaceutical companies in terms of shipments arriving, uh, delays in, uh, in the actual rollout of the vaccination are the province's problem. So under what scenario does the federal government lose? None. But if things go well, uh, you know, the prime minister is the captain of this, uh, of this ship, wayward at times, but uh, you know, moving in the right direction, according to many, uh, he'll get the, the glory if things go well. How long can you blame everyone else when at the end of the day we're seeing other countries who are in the same position that Canada was in go wailing past us? Yeah. Uh, you know, there may be all those things that you said in a portfolio and such, but there's lack of licensing and production deals. Uh, you know, we, we've been hearing from pharmaceutical companies, Canadian pharmaceutical companies for, for months now saying, man, we can be doing this. So yeah. at what point does the focus move to that as opposed to the provinces? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Canadians, I think that one of the most shocking things for them to learn back in, I think it was December, was that Canada doesn't have uh, production capabilities for this, this vaccine. And I think many Canadians, our polling showed at the time, were looking around, go, scratching their heads saying, you know, how can we as a prosperous G7 country with pharma companies operating within our, our borders, how can we not have the capability to, to produce this? And now, a couple months later, we're, uh, you know, realizing the consequences of that, where, uh, you know, we smugly look south of the border and, and, and we're chastising our American colleagues for, for how well, you know, or not well they were containing the virus. Well, you know, now it looks like they're going to have everybody vaccinated by the end of May. Uh, and uh, most Canadians actually don't believe that they'll get it by June. Maybe two thirds think they'll they'll get it by uh, by the end of September, which leaves a third looking not just to the end of this year, but into next year before uh, they expect to receive the vaccine. All right, so let's take a look at these latest numbers from uh, Ipsos, and uh, it's pretty close, 52% not confident, 48% uh, 48% feel they're confident, but I guess the older the demographic, the less confidence there is. Yeah, that's right. There's a, a real sense of urgency from among uh, Canadians, boomers, say 55 and older, um, you know, a real strong desire to get the, the vaccine as quickly as possible. They're, um, they're least skeptical of its benefits. They're least worried about potential side effects. Um, they just want to be vaccinated imminently. Um, the other group that, that is really interesting is, is younger people because we know, you know, while the, the health effects haven't been as pronounced on, on younger people, the mental health effects have been um, uh, more pronounced among younger people. And, and they're looking to get the vaccine, not, not necessarily for the health benefits, uh, but for the being able to re-engage in, in society, the workplace, the economy, meeting with their friends like they haven't been able to do for the better, well, more than a year now. How about from province to province? Because we've got, you know, uh, heard again today, Quebec seems to be going it alone a lot. Uh, we remember they were the first ones. Uh, they, they didn't administer any second doses for the longest period of time going against the direction from Health Canada and the manufacturer. Uh, now, uh, because of the shortage of vaccine, uh, all the provinces seem to be uh, unloading the second dose as the first now. And now with the AstraZeneca, although Health Canada has approved it for 65 plus uh, advisory, the advisory council has not. Uh, they're saying, well, Health Canada has, so we're going with 65 plus and are, and are really different from any other province in that respect. 
Yeah, they they tend to um, uh, to create their own path in in many uh, areas of, of public policy, and the and the vaccine is is certainly one of those uh, one of those areas as well. You know, uh, Quebecers are are the least likely to be uh, concerned about uh, uh, you know taking the vaccine. Um, uh, the, the 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 speed with which it was developed is not concerning. We also have to remember within Quebec that the, 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 the pharmaceutical industry is largely based around Montreal, um, and so I, I think there's a great degree of, of trust uh, in, in that industry um, as well. Turns out some of the decisions that, that Quebec made, um, you know, were being followed by now many of the other provinces. But one of the areas, uh, particularly with schools, they were the quickest to get people back into schools. That led to another resurgence. And, you know, a lot of Quebecers were saying, mm. you know, maybe we, we did that a little bit too quickly. Um, what about uh, new information coming up from the Center of uh, Center for Disease Control in the United States now giving out guidelines of if you're fully vaccinated, here's what you can do, uh, including meeting with others that are fully vaccinated uh, without the mask, without social distancing, uh, chatter about what you can do with grandparents uh, and such. Well, here in Canada, we're extending uh, the second dose. H- how do you think that's going to resonate with Canadians? I know that's new information. You probably don't have polling info on it, but how do you think that's going to resonate? Well, I think if Canadians um, increasingly see uh, an emerging sort of dichotomy between what the experience is in Canada, which is uh, more social distancing, more restrictions, and what the experience is in other countries, uh, they're, they're, they're going to be upset. And we know that actually a majority of, of Canadians, 60%, it's been up and down a little bit as we went through the pandemic, but 60% believe that the vaccine should be mandatory, and 72% support requiring proof of vaccination for people who want to engage in, in certain activities. So um, this is really the linchpin uh, vaccinations to uh, return uh, to normalcy. Um, Canadians want to see people get vaccinated. They want them to be able to to prove that they are vaccinated before they begin to venture out and, and put others at risk again. Where do you think we're going with the second dose? Because obviously numbers will speed up uh, at quite a fast pace here as a result of not holding back that second dose. But what happens a couple of months from now? Yeah, I think that um, you know Canadians uh, uh, are, are their trust in in authorities is being put to test. Right, uh, authorities are saying no. We feel that the better the better decision is to is to wait and uh, uh, get everybody vaccinated with the first before we move on to the second. I think the 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 critical thing here that's going to impact whether that's a good decision or a bad decision is the timing. Uh, Canadians, you know, can can come up with different ways of, of re-engaging with each other over the course of the summer. But if we start to get into the fall months and people are still waiting for that second dose uh, and have to reenact physical distancing uh, as, as, the, as the weather turns sour again, Yikes. I think they're going to get grumpy uh, about that and say, well, was this the best approach? Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. Majority of Canadians don't think feds will meet COVID-19 vaccine targets. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We haven't heard a lot about this in a long period of time, but the trial for uh, the ex-cop charged in the death of George Floyd is moving forward. Jury selection going on now. Let's bring in Paul Violas, law enforcement and security analyst for CBS News Radio, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Always a pleasure, Scott. So give us a bit of an update here. Uh, we haven't heard a lot about this in a while. Where is the trial uh, in regard to the death of George Floyd? Where are we now? We're at first day of jury selection, and they've already started with preemptory challenges. So this, this is going to take a while. There's no question about that. This has probably been one of the most highly publicized uh, police-related misconduct cases in the history of this country. So it's going to be very difficult for them to find 12 jurors that they feel that that both sides are going to be happy with. But that's what started off today. That's my next question. How do you find a juror that isn't uh, hasn't been bombarded with information on this? Well, it's going to be very difficult. You know, they have to fill out an, a questionnaire prior to even sitting in the jury room. And, you know, in that they have to assure that they understand the premise of the case and that they feel that they can provide an unbiased uh, opinion and judgment regarding the facts of the case. But 
still, given the publicity of this, Scott, I, I think they're, they're going to have a very difficult time getting 12 people. And I would say that it's one of the safest bets I've seen in my 40 year, 41 years of government service that you can expect this case to go on to the appellate court either way. Uh, so uh, obviously you're not going to find 12 jurors that haven't heard anything about this. So they will concentrate on the bias factor here uh, as opposed to those that know less about the case itself. Right. Scott, basically what they have to do is they have to find 12 jurors that are willing to concentrate on the facts of the case. And this is going to be really interesting, too, because of what Chauvin was charged with and what they tried to charge him with. So initially, well, currently, he, he's been charged with second-degree unintentional murder. And for all your great listeners, so that you understand, each state in the United States has its own set of criminal laws, and the material elements of those laws will vary from state to state. Typically, they, they have a lot in common, but it's not necessarily the case in all. So in Minnesota, uh, second-degree unintentional murder, uh, the state's prosecutor is going to have to show beyond a reasonable doubt that Chauvin caused Floyd's death while assaulting him. Now, this is going to be difficult because what the defense is going to do is they're going to weigh heavy on Floyd's drug use and his underlying health conditions. That's going to be a tough one to prove. They're going to pull a lot of medical evidence there. And again, the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that what Chauvin did caused it. It wasn't his underlying health conditions and they didn't contribute to it. However... He's also charged with second-degree manslaughter. Now, prosecutors here need to show beyond a reasonable doubt that he was negligent and took an unreasonable risk with Floyd's life when he restrained him and that his actions put Floyd at risk of death. I can tell you that if the prosecutors don't convict him on second-degree manslaughter, they better be looking for work because they're not going to have a job after this one. Uh, both these charges represent lack of intent, right? It's, it's not like he intended to do it. That's the position they're taking. Correct. And intent will not be required here as a material element, which is key, because what they were going to do, Scott, is they were going to charge him with third degree murder. And if they did that, that's where the intent comes in. That's where you have to go to the, the mens rea or the, 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 the mindset of the perpetrator. And that is very, very difficult to prove. It's murky waters at best. So, uh, you know, they, they, they did a lot better by getting rid of that charge if they want to convict this guy. We have heard uh, chatter about the charges. Do you see any more, anticipate any more changes in those? I don't. Unless, of course, they reinstate the third-degree murder charge, which I think would be ridiculous. And, and not to say that I am supporting in any way, shape, or form what this guy did, because there's no question in my mind of what he did was beyond egregious. It was excruciating to watch. And, and I firmly believe he caused the guy's death. But we have to go by what the material elements of the crime is. And if they go back to the third-degree murder charge, they're simply not going to get it because they're not going to prove intent. How about that video we all saw? Um, how much of a factor is this in all of that? Uh, is the video I mean, in all of this? Clearly, they're going to show that. But remember, too, we've got two charges. So on one of the charges, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to have a lot of medical testimony. Now, I mean, when you take a person like me that's been in government service for over four decades, you know, that was excruciating. That was one of the most horrible things I'd ever seen yeah. in my entire career. There's no question about that. But now we move to the prosecutorial stage, Scott, which you are very familiar with. And in that, rules change. So... They're going to have to say because he did what he did that it actually caused the death. And that's going to be, uh, again, those are going to be some murky waters. Uh, what about pub uh, public reaction to all of this at this stage? We are going to see mass rioting across the country if he's not convicted hands down across the board. There's, there's no, there's, that is the safest bet, Scott, I have ever made in my entire life, and I'm not a betting guy, but that's the safest bet I'll ever make. If he's not a, a convicted across the board, if his... If the other offices aren't convicted, which I don't believe they will be, we're going to see mass rioting. The, the, the U.S. is going to start gearing up for that, which is obviously at a bad time because of defunding police and having fewer police out there than we've had since the 60s. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to be in store for it. Uh, will America see changes or is this just more of the same? No, you know, I wish that I wish to God that, that, that I could say that we would, Scott, because, uh, you know, I want to see changes. I. I was a commanding officer of a state police academy, uh, one of the larger ones in the country, uh, as my last post, and it, it was during the Rodney King era. 
and I was hands-on across the country working to reform police. But at that point, we actually funded more training so that we could educate police. We increased the, the screening of police, so we weeded out people during the psychological stage. And we d actually accomplished a lot of good at that point, obviously 30 years ago. Now, by defunding police and taking money away from training and reducing the selection and the recruiting process, all we're going to do is enhance the problem we're not, and, and, and we're going to grow the problem. We're not going to get rid of the problem. Yeah, it seems that every day we're asking police to do more and more, and yet now we're having the discussion of, of defunding. And, um, you know, obviously those two sides have to be brought a little closer together before there's any, going to be any sort of uh, real solution here. Uh, Paul right. Violas is with us, law enforcement and security analyst for CBS News Radio. Paul, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. You as well. Uh, obviously, uh, the uh, there has been reaction in the UK over the Oprah uh, interview with uh, Harry and Meghan. It aired there last night, a day after it uh, did here in North America, although I'm sure through social media they had a good idea of what was coming. Uh, Prince William reportedly devastated over the interview. Uh, I think they thought that it would be deep, but not quite this deep. And uh, the Queen has now issued a statement, which we'll hear from. Uh, let's bring in Crystal Gamansingh, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. She is with us now. Crystal, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Yes, I am. How big a deal is this in the U.K.? What's the buzz like? Oh, my goodness. It's absolutely huge. And, and you're right. Well, you know, the, the broadcast officially aired last night here in the UK. Um, you know, many, many people were able to watch it on, um, you know, online and in different feeds. So many people watched the North American broadcast. And of course, all of the, all of the clips that were made available through, um, different news agencies, um, you know, it, it has been getting a lot of attention. And now, of course, we do, um, have a, a statement from Buckingham Palace and, and, I'm just going to uh, I'm going to share this out because it you know yep. just came in um, not not too long ago and it was it, there was quite a bit of discussion as to whether there was going to be a statement so the statement that was put out from Buckingham Palace Royal Communications says uh, and I'm quoting and reading the full statement here the whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan the issues raised particularly that of race are concerning while some recollections may vary they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately, Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much-loved family members. So that is the official statement just released from Buckingham Palace regarding that, um, you know, really, um, you know, quite thorough, long, um, and, and very, very interesting interview um, given to Oprah by Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry. So uh, I've been following this on social media since the Queen did issue the statement just a few moments ago, as you mentioned. And uh, obviously, as you can expect, the the the, the uh, reaction is widespread, depending on on which side of this uh, discussion you are on. Uh, is this enough? Are you surprised she said anything? Uh, what are your thoughts on how this will be interpreted? Uh, well, it, it, it really is. You talk about the divisions. The, this is um, a, a divisive issue. Race is in, in you know, anytime you talk about race and institutional uh, racism, it, it divides people. It is, um, you know, a very um, heated discussion. It's a difficult discussion, regardless of what country you're in, it, it does, um, you know, um, tend to make people feel uncomfortable. And that's part of the conversation, which is, you know, we need to have uncomfortable conversations to really see progress. Um, you know, the, whether or not um, she was going to release a statement, if the palace was going to say anything, that was up for debate. Often, um, throughout different um, crises, we have, you know, not heard from the palace. They famously, you know, don't comment on stories. This one, however, given given the nature, given the very public um, leaving of royal life from this, you know, very popular couple. They, you know, they, they were seen at one point as sort of the um, progression of the royal family, this, this mm -hmm. you know, happy biracial couple. You know, we have to remember that, you know, there are 16 Commonwealth realm countries, one of them being the UK, and of course Canada is involved in that as well. So the idea, you know, originally this couple really kind of brought the um, the monarchy to the to 
you know, modern days. And when they left, there was a lot of devastation. People obviously still, still feel very close to Harry, given his, his trauma as a child, losing his mother. So there is, um, you know, great compassion for, for, for Harry. Um, Meghan Markle, different story. There's, there's um, you know, it doesn't seem to be as much compassion for her. And that kind of brings all into the question as to why that is. Is it because she's biracial? And it brings up all of those racial tones. But there's not a lot to the statement. You can see that they're trying to address it. Um, you know, we, we had heard before the interview that the, the palace was launching an investigation into allegations, um, you know, that, that Megan had bullied staff members. There isn't a, a, a promise of an investigation here, but rather, a, you know, a, a statement saying that they will deal with the um, the the questions around race and racism privately, um, but we, we don't hear anything about the issue of mental health and mental health services. And that was the other thing that Meghan Markle brought up, that she was, you know, distraught, that she was, you know, suicidal and needing help and went to them and said, I need to get help. And, you know, in her words, you know, the institution said no, that it would it would look bad on the institution. Senior members of the royal family do work on mental health. They advocate for mental health services. Yeah. They they advocate for the ending of the stigma around mental health. So a lot of people, and I would have expected, um, you know, some some conversation around that aspect, and that might still be coming. Maybe there will be an investigation into that side of it. Um, but this, while we have some some sort of communicate from the family, um, I, I would be surprised if this is where it ends. Uh, I know we only got a little bit of time left here, uh, Crystal, but uh, there was lots of, uh, one of the big focal points of this interview was when Megan spoke of the child and how others addressed the color of the child. Um, uh, Oprah was quick to say on the morning show the next day that it was not the Queen or Prince Philip that said that is now the big search on for who did. That is raising questions. Um, you know, they, they did point out that, no, it wasn't it wasn't the Queen. It wasn't the Duke of Edinburgh who was involved in those conversations, that it was somebody else. But now not knowing, now people are questioning, well, who is it? You know, one of the fronts of the newspapers, you know, commented on, you know, so who's the royal racist? Um, so there is still, you know, with, without that knowledge, it sort of paints a wider brush and people are wondering who it is. Um, and then there's also discussions, you know, again, there are so many people weighing into this conversation because it is such um, an important issue, but it, it does, you know, it, it divides people as well. Um, there's a lot of people questioning about, you know, well, whether it was that comment even, um, you know, racist it was what does it have racial undertones so um this is a very deep conversation it is a, a conversation that has been had for a long time and and will no doubt continue um over the coming days and, and hopefully um you know more can can be addressed but it is it is something that is definitely um dividing people here and you can see it even just looking at social media you mentioned it earlier or or mm. uh, you know at the the fronts of, of many of the tabloid papers Krista Gaman sing with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this in Crystal's reporting. Crystal, thanks so much. Be well. Good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. And I understand that you don't like Meghan Markle. You've made it so clear a number of times on this program, a number of times. And I understand that you've got a personal relationship with Meghan Markle or had one and she cut you off. She's entitled to cut you off if she wants to. Has she said anything about you since she cut you off? I don't think she has, but yet you continue to trash her. Okay, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry, no, oh, sorry. Do you know what, that's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe not my no, own No, 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 no. See you later. I'm being... Sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behaviour. You... He, I'm sorry, but Pierce spouts off on a regular basis and we all have to sit there and listen. 6.30 to 7 o'clock yesterday was incredibly hard to watch. Oh, my. That's what happens when you lose control of the show, I guess. Uh, that is an excerpt from uh, Good Morning Britain. 
Uh, and Piers Morgan storms off the set uh, after his uh, remarks about uh, Meghan Markle were, ch- were challenged by another person who was uh, on set. And he just snapped and, nope, I'm not that, nope, hey, nope, hey, nope, wait, I'm out of here. Where's Benny Hill when you need him? Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. She's with us now. Alyssa, your thoughts on, uh, you know, I understand this is an extremely sensitive issue. I understand that there's a lot of loyalty here. Um, but boy, oh boy, we all have responsibilities, and one of them isn't storming off the set. Your thoughts about what happened with Piers Morgan? Well, first of all, only on British TV can you describe something as being diabolical and absolutely be able to get away with it. That's the first thing. Um, You know what's interesting, Scott? Before I came on here, I listened to a podcast where they were interviewing Piers Morgan, and the podcast podcast was called Midpoint. And I wanted to hear Piers as he was, not Piers as he's, you know trying to gain viewers or clickbait or whatever. And, you know, for the most part, love him or hate him, I listen quite intently. He's a very level-headed guy who has had a very, very long career. So first I watched the clip and I watched him storm off. And what the media is also not reporting, I'm not defending Beers, but what they're not reporting is that he came back two minutes later because he had to cool off. Okay? So that actually happened. The second thing is, is that, I don't know. I think that that behavior is quite uncharacteristic of Piers Morgan. And I'm wondering, and I'm just going to put it out there with you, Scott, I'm wondering if that wasn't a little bit of a setup. Really? Well, I mean, worse things have happened, that's for sure. Um, Wow, was it set up? You know, I mean, listen... Boy, if that was set up, that's the ultimate sham. And uh, if that was ever found out by the public, I'm sure they would. Uh, people would would say, "Off, turn it off." I mean, that's that's that's. You know what? If that was set up, that just proves everything that those two were saying is absolutely true. And this has gotten completely out of hand. Well, you know? I, I think that listen, I've been listening to Piers Morgan, and he has gone off. I mean, it's a very very definitive point saying things about the Meghan Markle, Harry, Oprah interview that, quite frankly, I think people may have been thinking but were afraid to say. But Piers Morgan has kind of built his career on that. And one thing that was interesting that he said in this interview that I listened to earlier, he says, if I wanted a new persona, give me three months and I'll do it. And what was interesting about that is, is that that really started, he developed this sort of newer persona, I guess, you know, when the lockdown uh, came about in Britain, and he was having the the ministers on and not giving them any quarter and absolutely grilling them and roasting them to a a char. So, first of all, you know, that's how we recognize him. Secondly, I think he has a pretty tough skin. Uh, You know, when when you're someone who spouts the opinions with a very, very specific point of view, like peers, I think you... You need to develop. If you don't have a tough, uh, a tough skin, then you need to develop one. So for him to walk off and to have to cool down, yeah, I mean, you know what? When, when you bring upon criticism, sometimes you mainly do it to yourself. And this will definitely be one of those cases, if indeed this is the way it was supposed to play out. Even if you just go off for a few minutes and then come back, I don't know. I think the damage has been done. Let, let me read you the statement from the Queen, the following statement issued by Buckingham Palace on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen. The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some, recollect, uh, while some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, Archie will always be much-loved family Members. Your thoughts on this press release? Well, that's the perfect statement, right? It goes right down the line. Um, I'm sure they wanted it to be more harsh than it was, because whenever you start a statement, it starts in the worst way possible. And then once you take the anger out of it, it becomes something that's very even keeled. The one thing that they did say, which is obviously noteworthy, is that we will keep this in private, meaning we don't need to go on Piers Morgan or, or you know, Good Morning Britain and air our laundry. So they definitely kept that in. And I think that that is a very, that's a very apt statement for the Queen. Um, they came out with it quite quickly. You know, they could have come out with it Monday, but really I think it was wise to let cooler heads prevail and come out with it today on Tuesday because really the whole 
um, Oprah show did not air in Britain until Monday night in its entirety. Yeah. I'm sure people were watching it on YouTube and whatnot. So it actually bought them a day to come out with a statement that allowed them to have uh, sort of a bit of a perspective, acknowledge that they need to change, they need to relook at things, and that there is some go-forward action plan. Not a huge one, but I'm hoping to see that there's more in the coming days and weeks. Um, did they need to elaborate more on that in the sense that there will be an investigation in this and we will see changes? Um, no, I think that you have to keep it vague in this case because, of course, you're going to be measured on whatever those outcomes are. So if you say that there's going to be an investigation, you know, who's going to do the investigation? Yeah. An outside firm is going to investigate the goings-on inside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> you know, it, it, even if it was MI5, what do you think that they're going to say? Yeah. I think that what this statement says is, is that there's going to be some self-reflection. Uh, they're going to take it seriously. I think that the Queen um, was somewhat unscathed uh, as opposed to Charles in this, in this whole thing. Yeah. So yeah. I think that people tend to, I think that they will believe that statement. And of course, what, you know, pundits like me will say, well, proof is in the pudding. But let them develop that on a timeline that doesn't take centuries, but instead weeks. Uh, what does this do for Charles? Because obviously there's those of us that remember the Chuck and Die era, and he certainly has no fans from there. And now uh, the way he's treated Harry. Well, everybody is speculating on this, so I hate to speculate, but I'm, I'm going to do it here. And, you know, maybe this was part of the dramatization of the crown. But I think that uh, Queen Elizabeth probably delegated some responsibilities and certainly around this to Charles because it is his son. I would say that he did make missteps, uh, mainly out of anger. And perhaps had he had let his uh, let cooler heads prevail, he wouldn't have cut them off or he would have come to some sort of detente around the whole thing. But right now, Charles is cast as the villain. Um, I saw an outtake of the CBS morning show with Gail King, and of course she had her buddy uh, Oprah on, and that was very nice of Oprah to serve up that story to Gail on a platter. But, uh, you know, while they, they, the two of them were speculating, well, who could have inquired about the color of the baby's skin? And it wasn't Prince Philip, and it wasn't the Queen. So, you know, in essence, they're taking everybody down that road. So, yeah. You know, this only hurts his brand, his image, as he really is the next in line. And there's a lot of reparations that have to be done. And I think that some of that is, it behooves Charles to do some of the work also. To do the Mm -hmm. work, not some of the work, but he needs to do the work also. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me. You be well too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.